reached the Entertainment Hotline, a chatter podcast. Listen as celebs dial in to chat with Anita Annabelle. Chatter.com.au and Media Week's Head of Entertainment. Dial 1 for movie stars. Dial 2 for streaming stars. Dial 3 for TV stars. Dial 4 for music stars. Or press 0 to speak with the star of the show herself, Anita. Hey, Derek Jai Singer from SBS Viceland's Melbourne International Comedy Festival's Raw Comedy National Grand Final. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Entertainment Hotline. I am your host and head of entertainment at Media Week and Chatter, Anita Annabelle. Royal Comedy 2023 is the largest and longest running national open mic competition in Australia, celebrating the freshest and the funniest new talent from around the country. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival's 2023 Royal Comedy Final took place on April 16 and was hosted by Logie award-winning comedian Dilruk Jayasinghe. This year marks Raw Comedy's 28th year and has catapulted some of Australia's biggest comedy names to stardom, including Hannah Gadsby, Josh Thomas, Ronnie Cheng, Celia Pacola, Matt O'Kine and Aaron Chen, just to name a few. In this episode, I spoke to host Dilruk about the Raw Comedy Festival, why he's afraid of the massive talent rising through the ranks how a heart attack at age 37 changed his perspective on life and how he forgets he's actually starring in ABC's Utopia while on set. Raw Comedy 2023 aired on SBS Viceland on Saturday, July 22 and can now be streamed on SBS On Demand. Here's Dilruk. How are you? I'm so good. It's so nice to meet you. I can't believe yeah. it. Wait, so you got a new laptop in like three years after the pandemic and you still don't know how to use Zoom. What? Well, so I, I've only ever used PC, uh, so Microsoft. <laughs> First time I got a Mac computer. So I'm like, where is the restart button? Welcome to the dark side. You'll yeah. never go back. No, because I thought, like, I'm, I'm a... Um, you know, iPhone users for the last decade or more. And I keep wanting to change back, like go to Android and screw these guys that, you know, they keep making phones obsolescent. So I have to buy the new one. And and then I just get to it and I'm like, oh, I just know it already. So it's so easy. So then I thought, <laughs> you know what? let's see what their laptops are on about. And I like it, don't get me wrong, but also I'm still like thrown off by getting text messages while I'm working. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so I'll have it here and then it'll pop up or email. Like, it's so annoying, isn't it? Is it? It's distracting. It's so, so distracting. distracting. I love it because you sound like an old man um, <laughs> with technology. Boom Real boom manager right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you and I are the same vintage just about. I think you're a year older than me. So I'm 85. Yeah. 86. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're finding that age later where we're falling behind the the yeah. life signs of the times. I can barely you know? do the supermarket checkout. <laughs> I'm not that bad. <laughs> maybe next year I'll be. Maybe on next year. It's just cause, cause you know what the weirdest thing is? It's because kids, kids these days, kids these days, they just are so technologically savvy. But whereas we grew up learning about technologies, they've literally, that is their life. 
Yeah, they just do not know a world without the you know scrolling and swiping and things like that. Like my niece, when she was like two years old, and I was watching showing something on my phone. So she's two; she barely can talk. But then a message came, and the banner showed up, and she just flicked it up. And I went, "What the f- like? Are you serious? How did she even know to do that? She just watched my brother or something." She's just like, "That's clever." When I was doing my research on you, I always mm. type in Google literally their name and see what the top five searches uh-huh. that come up about you. So what people are searching for about you the most. And do you know what's Can really I interesting? Mine, probably Go. weight loss. Yes. Uh, weight loss is there probably wife, I think. Yes. There's wife. Uh, what else? You tell me. Girlfriend. Girlfriend and wife, both of them. Both of them? Both of them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope they meet each other one day. I hope so too. And then heart attack. Okay, fair enough, yep. And then Sydney. Oh, that's a strange one. Maybe because I don't do as many shows in Sydney as I like. I only do like two a year. And maybe people are like, when's, the, when's this fucking idiot coming to Sydney? That is so funny to me because I looked at it, didn't even think about your shows, forgot you're a comedian, jokes, did not. Um, but I actually was like, maybe they're wondering if you live in Sydney. I've done campaigns for the city of Melbourne and everything, so I'm very Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne. Yeah, you know? Melbourne. <laughs> Let's talk about Raw Comedy Festival because yeah, this is super-duper cool. Mm. Uh, 28 years, firstly. Yeah. Almost, you know. That's almost as long as you and I have been alive, sort of, not really. I wish we were 28. We would like like to think that it started when we were babies. Definitely the wrinkles under my eyes and my forehead don't say that it's as old as I am, you know. But (laughs) I definitely, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an institution because there's been some really heavy hitters who've been part of the national final, you know. So you've got thing Hannah Gadsby, Ronnie Chang, uh, I believe people like Tim Minchin, you know, they all sort of came through the Royal Comedy competition. But that's incredible because there's also like Matt O'Kine, who Matt we O'Kine, love. We love Pacola. Matt O'Kine. Celia Pacola. Luke McGregor. So, so what? Oh, Luke McGregor as well. Yeah, yeah. So for those of great people who don't know, it's, Basically, it's a national competition. Usually about thousands of uh, new comedians uh, sign up and goes it's all around the country in all the major cities, including some, uh, you know, smaller towns as well. And, uh, and yeah, they whittle it down to 12 finalists. And it's quite an arduous task, obviously, from the judging panel because you're taking a 1,000, squeezing it down to 12. And, yeah, the 12 get to perform at the Melbourne Town Hall during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So we have people from Victoria, from um, New South Wales, Queensland. I think we had a Tassie comedian there, someone from Darwin. Um, so it really covers the whole kind of continent, uh, the, yeah, I guess continent in a way. And, um, and yeah, they, they're fighting to be the and the winner then ends up going to Edinburgh to perform at the uh, uh, new That's comedian. Amazing. There, which uh, again, it's so funny because like previous contestants of that have been people like uh, Russell Brand and you know uh, I think Dylan Moran and stuff like that. So it's it's all this. This is where it all kind of starts, you know. That is wild. And then, did you do it? Have you done a year? I didn't actually look at that. I, I did do Royal Comedy Competition. I never made it past round one, I believe. 
So, so, so as I like to say, they're, they're looking for the future stars. And as I like to say, sometimes the judges get it wrong. They get know? it wrong, obviously. <laughs> and then they're like, you know, we thought he was a little bit funny. Let's just bring him back as host, maybe. Well, I had to, yeah, I had to take the scenic route to get to the national final. <laughs> so I really how, took that. How did you get this hosting gig? That's a hard one to answer without sounding like an arrogant prick. I love it. Please sound like an arrogant prick. I'm, I'm totally here for it. No, I mean, I suppose it's because, you know, I've, uh, look, I, I, I will say that the, it's not that the judges got it wrong. They actually probably were accurate when I did make it round past the first round in 2011 was my first attempt. Uh, and you get three attempts. Um, the second attempt was a bit better. But the third one, they said I had kind of improved too much in a way. <laughs> so they said, you're not quite raw enough anymore, which is a compliment. But also I was like, oh, man, I have three attempts. Let me have a go. I want to get to the national finals. Yeah. And I didn't. I, instead, I did. Uh, what did I do? I, I think that year I did a split bill with another comedian. We did like half an eye each kind of thing. So, yeah, I just sort of gradually gotten, got better. Like the first five minutes that I did at Raw in 2011 was terrible. Like without a doubt, I did not deserve to make it to the next round. Um but I think I just, you know, I'm someone who, with stand-up at least, really did not fear failure. <laughs> so no matter how bad I was at it, I just was loving the process of it so much that I just kept at it to the point where I got five minutes that worked and then I got 10 minutes that worked. And then two years later, I got 20 minutes that worked. And then, you know, just kept like slowly building to the point where now I, you know, I'm very proud of myself that I do stand up, you know, full time. I love the fact that you like kind of went through these phases of going like I got, you know, 10 minutes of of, mm. of script or whatever and you went on and on. Is this something that has has your comedy evolved do you think throughout the last what tw- is it 20 years? Surely not. No, 15. What, that you've doing stand up. That you've been doing stand up. Uh, this we're I'm just in my thirteenth year. Thirteenth year. So yeah, September 2010 is when I did my first ever gig. You know, so uh, yeah. Why, why did you make that face? I know because we're so old. Oh, ah, <laughs> oh, look. I to be honest, yes, age is definitely something that's you know has its drawbacks. But I'm kind of proud in a way because I look at myself today versus the twenty year old idiot that I was, and I'm really, I, I kind of. You know, and plus being youth is exhausting, you know. Uh, totally. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I think the best part about growing old is you getting to know yourself more, which means that you just stop wasting time doing the things you don't want to do and meeting the people you don't want to meet. For me, that element of aging is something I really love. Like, I'm less afraid to say to someone, you know what, uh, I won't be coming tonight. Thank you. Whereas in my 20s, I was so desperate to just, you know, get everyone's love and attention. And I'm like, I'll come, I'll come and just stretch myself today. Yeah. So, yes, so 13 years I've been doing stand-up and I'm That's proud of that. Crazy. And so with your with the way that you do your comedy, we will go back to Raw, I promise, but I'm just mm. really fascinated. The way that you do your comedy, like, do you draw from, like, all personal experiences do you find that like in one year you'll have like the same kind of content that you'll write about and then moving on to the next it'll be like something else major happens yeah so from from each person's different i can only speak for my process i suppose and for me 
uh, it's very much just stuff from my life, very anecdotal. Um, I try not to, last year's show was a, or rather this year, 2023 show was an exception. The show was called Heartstopper and it was about a heart attack that I had last year. So it was very specifically about a major event and pretty much the entire show is about that. Whereas prior to that, I would say I don't really write to a theme. I just kind of, something tickles my brain, I'll note it in my phone or my notebook and then I find an open mic and I'll just tell it as it is without really putting the bells and whistles on it in an open mic because then I can, you know, fail in obscurity. So I kind of like, you know, quietly bomb in small, small rooms around town <laughs> and then start to find where the where the joy of it for me, you know, because again, like some other comedian might see a different angle, whatever, but me, I don't really know. Like I know it's, once it tickles me, I know there's something in that. I just don't know how to articulate that to uh, different people, you know? So that's the challenge. That's the puzzle for me. Go, how do I make what's funny in here funny to not just one audience, but, you know, audiences in Melbourne CBD as well as, you know, King Roy, Queensland, you know? So like, I just, I, I love trying to make my material as accessible as possible eventually, you know? But that first bit of tickling is very much like the part of the puzzle. And so what I then do when I put my whole hour together is I look at the little bits that I have and even though it's not written with a theme in mind, there is a theme to be found because mm. my head, it's coming from the same head and same head space. So whether it's say when I was a five years ago, a single guy who was drinking a lot and, uh, you know, not exercising, there was a particular type of way of looking at the world. Whereas now as someone who's been seven years sober, um, oh, I'm not in a relationship anymore, but there was a time I was in a relationship you know, it has a different perspective. So even if it's a material about something that's nothing to do with those things, it still comes to that frame of mind of, you know, say with alcoholism or whatever, seeing that you have a problem and then fixing it, you know, that even though I'm not specifically mentioning it, that same kind of um, modus operandi is there in the material, you know? I cannot believe you're seven years sober. That is unreal. Congratulations. You seem more shocked about that than the heart attack at the age of 37. No, well, I did say that before <laughs> we were recording. I literally was like, heart attack, age 37, which I want to touch mm. on. Absolutely. Mm. But I am, no, that seven years sober is amazing. Mm. Yeah, thank you. It's not been easy, that's for sure. Of I definitely feel. Uh, especially during the pandemic, I'll tell you what, it's not a great time to uh, be sober. Uh, and if you love drinking, especially, but I, uh, no, I, uh, it was just something that is, you know, probably the best decision I've ever made as hard as it was. Uh, I think it's one of those ones that, uh, it seems like an impossible task to the, for me, someone like me who loved drinking, loved, uh, you know, so much of my identity was wrapped up in being, uh, the piss head in town kind of thing, as well as at uni and all of that. So for me to reframe all of that, uh, because of how unhealthy my relationship with booze became, because it wasn't just about having a couple of big nights here and there, it was becoming like almost a nightly kind of, um, you know, yeah, yeah. And it was just, I was just becoming gross and a person I wasn't proud of. So I knew I had to fix it. So that is very commendable to like see that you have a problem and to do something about it. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 the good and bad thing about being self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're like, oh, I'm such a bad person sometimes. Not a bad person. You're like not a yeah, a not a yeah, a flawed person. I, person. I was ignorant. I just think I'm you know king shit, and then just move along. 
but then, like, before we go back into the royal comedy, because I know that's what you're here to talk about, but I am really curious. I mean, this this heart attack at the age of 37. Yeah. What a scare for you. Like, how on earth did that even happen? Uh, Well, if you're in Canberra, you can come August 12th. I'll be performing the show there. I'll wait. I'll be there. (laughs) Send me some ticks. (laughs) I absolutely would, Anita, if you're happy to do the drive. Oh, my God, of course. I'd love to. <laughs> well, uh, we'll yeah, I'm being sincere. You can absolutely, yeah, we can see oh, that. But, um, but broadly speaking, I was just at home here in my apartment uh, on a Wednesday during the comedy festival last year in 2022, and just had a weird little pinch in my left arm. And you know, uh, because of family history of both parents having heart attacks, I knew to not take that lightly. I tried to just wait it out, but then I felt like a little tiny tightening in my chest. Again, not painful at all just very odd that's all like it was not i can't even describe it as pain just a discomfort if anything and so i decided i walked to my gp and um and he was like oh look your blood pressure is high but your ecg is good just to be on the safe side go to the emergency ward they'll do more tests i get to the emergency ward they said yeah look we'll do the tests but um we're pretty sure this is psychosomatic because my ecg is so good and like like honestly because i was walking and you know breathing fine they're like it's very unlikely that you're having a heart attack but it's like probably stress from the comedy festival but to put your mind at ease let's do some blood tests and x-rays and stuff like that and he said we'll be back with the results in about an hour and a half but an hour later he shows up and he's like yeah no we're gonna have to keep you overnight because apparently there's an enzyme that shows up in your blood after a cardiac event and mine it, it showed up and so they're like oh Oh, why is that there? And so then um, they did a more testing, and like a, which is an angiogram where they pump you with this dye to see what's happening. And they found an 80% block in a uh, artery that they call the widow maker. So they then just put a stent in and sorted it out. However, yeah, it was super scary because you know, a it was frustrating because I'm someone who did you know prioritize my health, quit drinking got healthier, you know, lost about 30 kilos, ran a marathon, like all 42.2 kilometers. And after doing all of that, you're telling me I still had a heart attack. Like, God, it's so, so frustrating. And, um, but at the same time, it is because I was fit and healthy because I had such good cardio fitness that the ECG didn't show any damage. So in spite of, if you think of it as plumbing and muscles, my plumbing was messed up, but the muscles around the heart were so strong that it kept pushing past the block, you know, so it didn't cause any pain or discomfort. So I really should be grateful for exercise because it did save my life in that sense. Cause it could have been, you know, the block, the heart might not have had the capacity to, to survive the attack, you know? Oh, my God. So-, so how has that affected your life now then? Uh, it's a really great question, Anita, and I don't think we have time to unpack that all <laughs> um, because, you know, it definitely has affected my self-confidence. It's affected my um, motivation to want to uh stay healthy and prioritize exercise it's uh affected my you know outlook on the point of any of this as well like this is all by the way simultaneously like it's it's what's there's a difference between what i know to be true and what i'm feeling so for example i'll give you a good example i know that i'm really grateful that i 
got the heart attack. So I know that this is something that I can keep an eye on now because in five years time, it had this gone, had I ignored it, I probably in five years time, it would be more deadly outcome because the mm. block would have still been there, just been building up, building up. Now that I have this information, I'm a bit more careful. I'm on medication, so on and so forth. However, simultaneously, even though this is not true, it's hard not to feel like my body let myself down, like let me down because I'm like, I come on, man, I ran, I got exercise, I lost 30 kilos, I quit drinking and you're still going to do this, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, especially because mine was cholesterol, not, uh, uh, yeah, would it, any, there's a lot of people, who, uh, annoying people who got excited thinking that it was the vaccine that caused it for me or whatever. I was like, please, let's not start, go there. Let me just grieve my near death experience for a moment Bloody without getting hell. political yeah i know but uh i uh mine's just cholesterol just a you know subcontinental diet plus i think some doctors believe that brown people have thin arteries compared to white people as well so there's a bit there i mean both my parents have had heart attacks you know what i mean so it's probably something genetic so all that combined has made me feel very um fragile and less resilient than i was say prior to it happening so like i said we don't have enough time to unpack this <laughs> on effectively a podcast to talk about it promoting a comedy show of new comedians so you know this is therapy hour with anita and dilrook um, <laughs> you poor thing though like i completely understand why that is the case my sister had leukemia and she was a um a running vegan and she yeah. got leukemia and it was a genetic thing but she's also since run five marathons so but she also felt the same like her body let her down so you yeah. know and in that in that in that instance is is a really good example where she didn't technically do anything wrong at least in my and in mine, you could identify going, hey, this is all the high fat food, all the pork bellies, all the, you know, ice cream, all of, like not even in like small amounts. I'd eat it in gigantic amounts, especially even when I was losing weight. My diet was like six days I died and seven day I'd have a cheat day. And the cheat day was epic in itself and crazy high cholesterol. But it's more even during the week I was eating like, even though I wasn't eating carbs, I was having a lot of like, a lot of high fat proteins. So I think all of that combined, in spite of me losing fat, didn't reduce my cholesterol. Look, like I don't know the exact things behind it, but I'm just basing it on my life. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating. So I could be completely wrong, but I just know that in my case, a lot of it was my own doing. And yet I still feel like, you know, a frustration that it happened when the truth is my body did exactly what it's meant to do when you do that, when you put that stuff in, you know what I mean? Mm. So it's working. I should be grateful that I have a body that works correctly. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And look, to be honest, you had your parents who've had heart attacks. Like it's, it's yeah. very, it's, it's obviously going to be something that that's, you're going to be susceptible to. So don't, yeah, yeah, putting exactly. so much pressure on yourself. I mean, like, yeah, the mm. cholesterol thing. People think cholesterol is just, uh, you know, being overweight. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, you know, keep an eye on it. That's for yeah. sure. I'm so glad we did this. Um, we've got run out of time. No, I'm joking. I really talk to you about that a lot though, because it really just makes up who you are. Like that's what I find mm. quite interesting. It's, it's a big part of who you are and it's, it's, it's life changing in your mind yeah. and your body and everything. Well, I suppose, again, going back to your original question as to how I get material or whatever, I think it's, it is it is because I have created a space where I'm able to talk about my life uh, on stage that they all feed into each other. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And it's a good and bad thing at times because there might be an element of me having not processed the heart attack um, completely 
uh, enough before talking about it publicly and finding the humor in it. You know, like that was definitely something I was very mindful of to be like, not to rush to tell this story um, because I hadn't mentally healed from it, I guess. Mm. Physically, I'm fine, but mentally still a bit rattled. However, I decided to tell it anyway because um, I could not think about anything else. <laughs> uh, at some point, I just, I'm like, it just felt silly to talk about, I don't know, like some of the material I was working on was like, I don't know, going to a nude beach for the first time or something like that. And I was like, this is funny and fun, but it doesn't resonate with me right now because that I don't care about it as much as I care about telling people about, you know, the, 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 the traumatic experience. <laughs> but I think like one thing that I think I find with comedians, people mm. who have that facade of being very bubbly and outgoing and funny, I like to think I'm funny, mm. um, that often you are battling with demons that people don't really necessarily know that you're battling with. Like you find it harder to, to kind of, it's almost like a mask. Like, I don't know if you feel that way, but when you step out, you're stepping out as this hilarious, bright, bubbly person. But on the flip side, you've got that real, you know, I've been through some shit. This is my trauma. But you just deal with it in a masky kind of way. Uh, I know what you mean, but I think I am very conscious to not do that. So, for example, the bubbly um jokey stuff that I do, uh, I work hard to make sure that it doesn't dilute the truth of the situation. So, for example, uh, if I, um, you know, I've talked about how I, on stage as a com comedy bit, I've talked about, you know, that I needed to call Lifeline during the pandemic. So that's something that, you know, I am not shying away from and i wouldn't use the word uh, facade being that it's a, um, that you don't see the truth do you know what i mean so mine is more i would say i still give as much truth as i can as as painful and dark as it might be but i think i serve it with uh, uh that makes it more palatable mm. rather than it being a masking so it's like you know if you think of it as chili being hidden under, you know, that you don't realize that it's there's this layer of ice cream and there's a whole bunch of chili underneath. Rather than that, it's more like the chili is there. You can see it, but you're able to kind of enjoy it more because I've put in, you know, it's more uh, palatable. Palm sugar and, and honey and stuff like that to kind of like, you know, easy. But it does not take away the fact that this is something that, you know, has some spice. <laughs> yeah, of course. Very spicy. Very spicy. Because, uh, yeah, I think if people have followed my work, whether it's podcasts or um, I have a podcast called Fitbit with another comedian, then, you know, on that versus and my stand up, you know, there's nothing that anyone who has actually followed my work would not be, would be surprised by to find out mm. about my private life. Do you know what I mean? Because I do talk about, um, you know, battles with mental health or uh, uh, battles with my obesity or alcoholism and stuff like that. So all of that is there. It's all there. I just, you know, um, I process it in a way that I am able to then find the humor in it without diluting the, the, the earnestness. In terms of the raw comedy, yeah. the comedians that are up and coming, mm -hmm. like what are their age groups that we're going to be seeing for this? Like, are they, uh, they range from teen to adult. Like, what what are we looking at here? Yeah, pretty much. I I don't know everyone's exact age, but we definitely have people talking about, you know, just coming out into you know out of school or whatever, as well as people talking about, um, you know, being a widow 
Like, well, we've got the full spectrum in this particular finals. And in terms of the standard, like, if I were to compare where I was at their, uh, when I was their comedy age, let's say, you know, because everyone's got different actual age, but their comedy age was when I was that age, comedy age, it is so much higher the standard that it actually scared me a little bit that day when I was posting. And I'm like, sure, I've got, you know, 13 years experience or 12 years experience at this and I'm okay. But these guys have just come out the gate and the quality is so good. And, you know, people with such original um, stories as well as original observations. Like I don't consider myself an observational comic, right? I'm, I'm good at telling what happened to me in a funny way back to people, but I'm not smart enough to look at something we've all looked at a thousand times and found a, a unique perspective on it. My mm. brain doesn't work like that. And just seeing some of the, the acts, I was like, my God, I better keep working hard because they're coming for me. <laughs> they're coming for your hosting gig. No. Yeah, they're just, oh no, just all my I'm work. just joking for all your work, yeah. But I get that. I mean, that's that's also, but if you think about it, 10, you know, 13 years ago, you didn't have the internet the way that they have it now. Like there's ways to be, I feel like technology has really helped. There's that phrase, rising tides raise all ships. And I think what has happened is the standard in Australian comedy has just gone up. I've, I've never been to America, but my friends who I respect who've been back and forth talk, talk about how pound for pound Australia has some great stand-up. Mm. The, the scene is a better scene because uh, in America and the UK, actually, uh, while you at the top tier, they're world-class, um, the next level down, we have people who are like, coming up who are better than the the tier below. Do you know what I mean? Because we have a smaller scene for starters and it is very, like you could be doing your first ever gig or second ever gig and be on the same stage as a Will Anderson or Celia Pocola because they all work in the same sort of clubs and things like that. So what other job do you have that your first day at the office, you're also working at the same desk as the CEO of the company? You know what I mean? So because of that, because of that, I think it raises the standard of, of the competition, of, of everyone around. And also what it does is, you know, if you're, on, you, you're, if you're the weakest on a stack lineup, it's forcing you to get better, you know? Whereas if you're the best in a crap lineup, you just rest on your laurels. That's crazy. Mm. Then how did you get into comedy? Yeah, I got fired from my accounting job. I was working in one of the big four accounting firms and I remember thinking that I did that job purely for money and I hated it. So what if I had all the money in the world, what would I do with my time? Once I bought the house and traveled the world and bought my Ferrari and all that, like I'd still need to spend my day doing something. What would I do? And I realized, oh, I just always wanted to try stand-up. So I'll give that a crack. And it took me about a year before I got the courage to do it because I have a fear of public speaking and I just didn't, you know, yeah, I, I've just done it often enough now that I've forgotten that, that I have that fear. Um, just some, some sort of immersive, but there's footage of me in my first few years where my whole body and hands are shaking as I'm holding the microphone. Um, but yeah, I just uh, decided that that year that I spent umming and ahhing about it was procrastination but it was because i had kind of felt like i failed at accounting by being fired and so uh i thought well if i 
give this little childhood dream of mine a go and I find out I'm bad at it, then I failed at that too. So I was like, oh, I, I just want to protect this little dream for, you know, for a bit longer. And then I thought, you know what, the pain of never trying it was worse than the pain of trying and failing. So that's when I gave it a go. And wouldn't you know it, I've bloody failed. Uh, I bombed my first five minutes, but I still loved it. And I don't think I'd ever done anything that I enjoyed the process of other than video games. You know what I mean? Like I just enjoyed playing the level without necessarily chasing the results. So even though the result was atrocious, I really loved that I got to play. And I knew that that was that that was that aha moment that I needed. So I went. I started working for a smaller accounting firm, and I told my boss the next day that I want a day off a week because I was like, ah, oh, yep, that'll. I don't need any more uh, evidence. This is all I want to do with my life, kind of thing. And he was supportive, and you know, uh, allowed me to take Tuesdays off. And you know, all I did on Tuesdays was just to get laundry and life admin because the rest of the time, what I would do is after I'd finish my accounting job and straight away go to a comedy gig. So even if I was not on, I'd go and watch. So I treated it like, uh, you know, I told myself, okay you're a new comedian so you only get a gig once a month at the time but what would a professional comedian do is like oh they'd be at a comedy club every night so i you know would go and watch comedy every night i moved to a you know the big venue in the in north melbourne called the comics lounge i actually moved to the street behind it so i knew that i could get there more often and uh yeah i just really threw myself into it and uh slowly kept shaving off time of my accounting job like i went from four days a week to three to two to eventually my boss saying do you still need to be here <laughs> like and um and yeah i'm grateful that i had a boss who was so supportive and understanding to the extent that he is now my accountant so i'm kind of giving him more work now so that's good <laughs> that is the best story what an outcome what an outcome for both of you that is <laughs> that yeah, so that's funny. But also, thank you to the boss that fired you. I mean, obviously, at the time it was pretty shit, but really, really shit because obviously my parents had spent a fortune for me to come to Australia and get a degree in accounting, and you know, I started doing it, and I wasn't right for it. In fact, when I got fired, that they said to me was, "You, we wanted to keep you around because you have a positive." impact on everyone around you in the office but you'll be doing something you're not suited for for longer and um i appreciated the honesty of it but at the same time it still hurt because again it's an mm -hmm. identity thing right i'd really seen myself as being in a desk job and earning money that way for for you know so many years admittedly though there was a little bit of relief because also when i first started doing it i was like oh my god is this my life for the next four decades i don't there's something wrong here i don't feel this doesn't feel right but okay i guess i'll keep going you know because you felt like I felt like a brat to whinge about having a, a, a corporate job at one of the big four accounting firms that so many of my colleagues would be desperate to get. And I was like, no, I'm not feeling fulfilled. You know, <laughs> so I need to go, you know, really go to my calling of telling dick jokes to strangers around the country, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but but I, I'm definitely someone that I have to be careful when I talk about this purely because I get very evangelical. It's the only time. I lose a balanced argument when I talk about chasing your passion. No, love it. I, love it. But but I have I have had to acknowledge that it's not for everyone though, because some people would rather the stability of mediocrity than the the excitement and volatility of giving it a red hot go. But then what did your parents so they sent you to Australia? Mm -hmm. So what did your parents then say that to you being a stand up comic? They stopped talking to me. I don't know what they said. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> they are incredibly supportive. They're, they're, they're most, 
you could not ask for more supportive parents to the point where it's actually a bit annoying at times because dad who lives in Sri Lanka will message me every day going, how was last night's gig? He knows so many different people in the scene, even though he's never met them. He's like, oh, we're so and so on. Um, mom, my dad's watched my Amazon stand-up special 23 times and every single time he cries at the end of it uh, because he's like, fuck, I wasted all that accounting money on this shit. And he's like, no, he he's cries because he's proud. And... Uh, and mom, on the other hand, she's a, uh, you know, my dad's Buddhist, my mom's Muslim. And I went to a oh, Catholic wow. school. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. And so mom, because of her conservative views, doesn't particularly love that I swear. Uh, but she's so supportive that she watches all my video clips, but she watches it on mute so that she doesn't have to hear the swearing, but she still enjoys watching me perform. <laughs> I asked her, what does she get out of it? She's like, oh, you look happy. And that makes me happy. I was like, oh, just oh let me God, be a struggling heart. artist. Stop showing me all this love and support and stifling my creativity. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe she watches you on mute. So cute, right? It's the best. That is so beautiful. Oh my God, I almost had a heart attack. Oh, sorry. <laughs> No, where is my, you know, call out culture for people using heart attacks <laughs> willy nilly? Yeah. Great. So I can't so believe this is, you get cancelled on your own podcast. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me about your heart attack. Let's see. Let's hear it. What did you feel? I always had a heart attack when you said, when you okay. said that your parents don't talk to you. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, no. And then I no, must have, I should have known. I should have it's known. Quite, it's quite the opposite. They're unbelievably supportive, you know. You're also starring in Utopia. Mm. What's it like being, do you know that show? I do TV ratings every single day. You yeah. had one million last episode. Really? As in last night or the one from? The one, so we do total TV. So you, you do it like last night's did uh, 740,000. Oh, only? <laughs> Not only, I'm mate. Inside. I know I'm you inside. are. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And then last week, because they do total TV, which means that it was a million. That's incredible. What's it like being back? Because that's that's a huge, huge, huge show. Um, and honestly, it's uh, it's the word dream come true it gets thrown around a fair bit, but that's one of those ones that is true. To be honest, the, uh, it ties in well with our conversation about raw comedy because I. I promise you when i did the royal comedy competition i didn't want to win all i wanted to do was perform at the national final because there's going to be 1200 people it's at the melbourne town hall i remember going to watch the royal comedy gig as a uh, punter i used to yeah. love going like feeling jealous of all these new comedians having the courage to get up there and do it and i've sat in that hall watching the national finals and will anderson was hosting it in 2008 and uh you know uh, no sorry 2009 and i was working across the road at my accounting firm and believe it or not it was a sunday yet i was still in the office because i was so bad at my job that i uh, had to study you know i had to come in on a sunday and still do work and then i took a break to go watch the raw national finals across the road that's a true story so for me, that uh, getting to finally get there at the national finals, even as the host, maybe not a competitor, is a genuine dream come true. And with Utopia, I was a fan of season one and two. And when they asked me to do season three, that was like, what? Like, I always hoped I could be on a show like that. I didn't ever think that it was going to be that show itself. You know what I mean? Because Because it's like, 
oh, they've got the cast. There's no room for me. Why would I make it there? And, you know, and all of a sudden there was an opportunity and I oh, could not be more grateful because as much as I'd worked with Kitty Flanagan, for example, as a stand-up, she's very different as Rhonda, her character. So the first scene I had uh, in that season three, I was at my desk and Rhonda kind of walked past. And I remember having that like a uh, flutter, but I'm like, oh my God, Rhonda is here kind of thing. Like just forgetting that this is not, this is Kitty Flanagan, a colleague. I was like, I forgot that I'm now not, I'm, I'm on the other side of the camera. I'm not, I'm not watching it. Not watching. I'm in it. Yeah, I forgot. I, I, it's, it's hard that the, I would say stand-up's really challenging or comedy in general is really challenging. But for me, the hardest part about what I do is behaving like a colleague and not a fanboy because almost everyone I get to call a friend or colleague now is like a version of a hero of mine. Do you know what I mean? Like Celia Pocola and Kitty Flanagan are two people I think I would say I can make a really strong case that they're the best comedians in the country because not only are they great at stand-up, they're like exceptional at stand-up, but they're fantastic on panel and off the cuff, but they're amazing comedic actors as well. So it's like every facet of comedy that's involved in this country, they do it and they do it in the top level. Like they're always in the conversation of the top five. You know, if you say the top five stand-up comedians, they're in there. Top five comedic actors, they're in there. You know what I mean? So for me, the fact that now I am sharing dialogue with them or on the same comedy lineup as them. Like, I think you can even tell it from the way I'm saying the excitement in my voice. I, I cannot believe I get to do this. So that's what keeps me kind of going is, is not, people think it's, I make a joke when I say this, but for me mentally, I feel like I, I peaked in 2017 and I, because that was when my mom and dad saw me headline uh, my gig and I was like oh that's all I was chasing this is this is the dream was mom and dad seeing me headline and do well so now what so for me now it's just much like I'm very much in like my victory lap kind of thing of just enjoying what I get to do while I can because I know how you know volatile this industry is and there's no guarantee that you're going to be around forever Um, so if that happens I don't want to if things start to go quiet for me, I don't want to ever look back and go, I wish I enjoyed it more while I had it. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm like extremely like um, vigilant about making sure that I pinch myself every single day that I get to do this. You are so divine. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I really hope that we did raw comedy justice, but like your life story is just too fascinating to let it pass me by. So thank you so much for joining me. I, I would say so. That, that I appreciate. Thank you, first of all, for the kind words there. Thank you for having me on. But I think, it, you know, given how much raw was my, um, how do you say, uh, not holy grail, but it just wanted to be part of it and then not getting it that original sort of the normal way, it still was a motivator to, to you know, work hard. Uh, outside the, the the raw competition and somehow keep getting better at it. So uh, to the point where they said, hey, would love you to host now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I really, for me, it's still the, the, the whole experience. I, I even said it to the festival. I was like, I cannot tell you just how much this means to me that I get to do it because of, I just know how 2010, 2010 deal would be unbelievably chuffed to know that he finally got there. Oh. On that note, you are amazing. You're a legend. Everyone has to watch Royal Comedy. It's just, it's too good. Uh, thanks, Anita. I appreciate it. It's just, it, 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 I hope people enjoy it and, and they see what I mean when I say I'm scared, when I see the, the standard of the talent that came through that day. Watch it's, your back. 
No, it's cool. No, I'm, I'm going to single-handedly sabotage all 12 of them somehow. Thanks for calling the Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle. You can find us on Instagram at the entertainment underscore hotline pod or visit us at chatter.com.au. The Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle is a proud Chatter podcast. 